Welcome to the Law Firm Growth Podcast, where we share the latest tips, tactics, and strategies for scaling your practice from the top experts in the world of growing law firms. Are you ready to take your practice to the next level? Let's get started. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Law Firm Growth Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Jan Roos, and I am here with a three-time repeat guest, one of our favorites, Brian Kennel, the CEO and founder of Perform Law. Brian, how's everything going today, man? It's really good. It's the, you know, the Friday before Mardi Gras, everybody's in good spirits. Things are good today. <laughs> yeah, I gotta say thanks again for uh, for making this on the Friday. Uh, <laughs> sometimes uh, I've definitely been on the other side of things. Sometimes just like, oh yeah, it's Friday after. Damn, I had that podcast. Okay, <laughs> not yeah, not for yeah. you, but when I'm on the other, but anyway, let's get the idea. All right, awesome, man. So I mean, I think basically we were actually just catching up on on non recorded live. <laughs> <laughs> just the two of us and um, we got into a couple of really interesting topics. And I was like, man, we got to get this back on the podcast. So, you know, the stuff that you guys have been doing over Perform Law, I mean, it's been an interesting year or so uh, since we last spoke, even uh, it was in the middle of COVID, but a couple of real big things that have, have tended to happen is, you know, this, you know, a lot of inflation stuff, a lot of people talking about the great resignation, more competition than ever, but, you know, what are the uh, challenges that your clients are, are going through right now and how are you even helping them around that stuff? So the major challenge that our clients are going through, and and we work, you know, at any given time, you know, with say 40 law firms across the country. So we have a pretty good, mostly small mids. So we have a pretty good feel for, for the issues in those firms. And most of it is trying to figure out kind of the order of things post-COVID. Not that COVID's gone, but People are generally trying to figure out if they're going to have a remote strategy, whether they're ever going to get people back to the office, whether they're going to have a hybrid approach, you know, what's the overhead model going to look like? And then you put on top of that the, you know, I think I've read somewhere in January, there's a need for about 12,000 attorneys nationwide. There are, you know, about 12,000 open positions. And we actually hired, you know, the legal community actually hired 300 less people in December. And uh, so when you kind of look at that, you say, okay, we have a huge need for lawyers and we're not able to find them. Everybody's sort of looking at us saying, where'd they all go? Did they all just go to a different planet? Did they, you know, did they all just (laughs) go to the islands and decide they didn't want to come back? I mean, so a lot of sort of the, the conventional norms that were just sort of what people could count on back in 2019 somehow just don't exist really anymore. And, you know, adapting to that's been really difficult. So those are the main challenges. You know, how are we going to staff it? Are we going to have a, you know, are we going to have a, you know, sort of a fixed place where people come? Are we going to go remote? You know, should we go hybrid? You know, are we got a long-term lease? So it's all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and I can definitely start to see how those things are all kind of interconnected. But um, let's uh, let's start with kind of an easy one. As far as the the firms that are hiring that you're helping out with, do you think being able to offer remote or hybrid is like a key consideration for you know the person who's looking to secure a job at a law firm these days? Is that a must-have? Yeah, I think it's an essential. Honestly, I think the days of, especially as you get more into the larger cities, where you know the cost of commuting and time and, and the rest of it and mass transit, I think it's an absolute have to have. You have to be able to offer remote opportunities. 
Yeah. And it's super funny too, because you know, we've always been remote here at Case Fuel too. And like that used to be a huge benefit when we were going on the job boards, like you know, we were able to work with stay-at-home moms and people who had different concerns with people at home. And like that used to be a huge benefit, but it's kind of just become table stakes in the last little bit. Yeah, it is table stakes. And some people are being really stubborn about it. It's almost like, hey, we've got this long-term lease on this two floors of office space. Doggone it, we're going to use it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And not to use another poker analogy, but it seems like a lot of these these big employers are kind of pot committed at this point, right? They got to. Yeah. Well, what's really interesting about sort of the work environment is so you'll have these firms, and we'll, we'll talk to them, and they'll go, "No, we're not remote anymore. People have to come to the office," and then. In the second breath, they're like, yeah, come to the office and nobody's ever really here. So while they might have, you got to come to the office policies, the truth of the matter is most of the people, you know, at least three or four days a week don't come to the office and they really don't do anything about it because they're getting their work done and their productivity's up. And so they just sort of sigh and say, oh, you know, we got to get more people in the office. And we just keep saying, why? Yeah. Well, let's maybe dig into that a little bit too, because I'm sure there's a lot of stuff that's built into why people don't want these work environments to turn remote. But like, what have you seen in terms of the people that have been able to go remote and you know really make things work from a productivity and a culture perspective that maybe these guys who are resisting it don't know is available to them? Well, the one thing in this, I don't know if this is particularly law firm specific or not, but I get the sense that it is. Some, you know, we're in law firms all the time. And to make, and you probably know this from Case Fuel, and, and we're remote here too, but to effectively make a remote environment work, you have to, in, in some sense, although more efficiently, simulate the office environment. You have to have, you know, routine check-in calls. You have to intentionally go out of your way to schedule time just to have conversations like this with people. You know, the kind of stuff that you would do if you were in the office and somebody was in the coffee room and you just chatted for five or 10 minutes, they don't have to be long meetings. They just need to be, you know, touch base. And then maybe there are structured meetings you have, but generally we like a, you know, a shorter more focused meeting around maybe one or two topics that people feel like, okay, it was worth getting on a zoom call for that. I think also another aspect of productivity is, you have to have people who understand that there's an implied bargain. Okay, we're going to go remote, but you got to have a quiet place in your house or your apartment or wherever you're living. And you got to have a structure around when you work, basically, although you do have a lot more flexibility when you, you work remotely, but you can't, you know, just disappear in the middle of the day. You got to cover all your commitments. You know, you got to stay engaged and stay focused. But for the most part, most people who are working remotely really appreciate it and are more responsive, not less responsive. Yeah, I was going to say, it's almost like sometimes it's easier in a lot of ways to get things done in an office because you don't have the option to just like opt out and start watching Netflix at 2 p.m. <laughs> if it's your prerogative. And also, you know, if you wanted to do that, there's no one over your shoulder necessarily like making uh, you know, making sure that you don't do that. So I think it's kind of like a two-way street. It's like there's less temptation for the user but all, or, uh, at the office and also just like, you know, this opportunity for maybe like a heavy handed style of management that is probably a lot harder to enforce, like in these kind of like remote situations. But, um, you know, in addition to kind of the meeting cadence, and um, this is kind of a, we've never talked about this, but I'm really curious about what your thoughts are. 
How do you feel about just like constant everyday messaging stuff? Like your, you know, your Slacks, your Google chats, like, you know, that, that kind of instant messaging type stuff within a law firm work environment. Those are essential. I mean, we use one, the clients, you know, most of the law firms are overwhelmingly Microsoft for better or worse. So we strongly encourage them to just, just implement teams, just simply, just simply implement that. You know, use Teams. It's part of your Office 365 subscription. It's decent. You know, use it. You know, something like that. Slack, a little less popular. You, you generally run into Slack. Not that we're talking about apps, but you'll run into Slack since in Slack and more of the G Suite type installs, which is only probably about two percent of law firms total. But, but yeah, the chat apps, the instant video. Although you know, Zoom seems overwhelmingly favored by law firms, but the ability to just you know, hit a button, do a quick video call, take care of an issue and move on are, are just critical, you know, just critical to making this work. Yeah. And beyond getting the apps installed too, like, are there any recommendations that you make for people around, like just norms around these instant messaging things? Cause like, I can see like potentially the, the sort of like Fantasia, like Mickey's brooms kind of getting out of control. And all of a sudden, like people yeah. are slacking from the morning they wake up to the moment they close. Like, how do you uh, kind of prevent those things from getting out of hand? So, you know, when you think about that, right, there are those kind of people who do that, that sort of thing, right? And those are the same kind of people who are going to be coming into your office every <laughs> seconds asking you, hey, is this right? You know, am I, am I on the right track, right? Yeah. So, so you have to manage it kind of the same way. You have this, you know, I just tell people and I, and I do it here. It's like, look, you know, let's, let's kill it for an hour. We got too much, you know, let's just kill this for a while. You know, we got too much to do. Check in with me later. Or you can set up an auto message like, hey, your message is important to me, but not now. You know, because people are going to obsess on, on kind of what they obsess on, but that's sort of the virtual chatty, you know, the person yeah. to be in the hallway disturbing four other people. I kind of look at it like that's a minimal, <laughs> and I can at least mute that, right? <laughs> yeah, that's true. Mute three people chatting in the, in the hallway without making a big deal out of it. So, yeah. So expectations, yeah, I guess it all kind of boils down to, you know, the real interpersonal skills, depending on, regardless of how people are going to find their way to, to weasel it around the system. Yeah, I mean, you know, you, you still have to deal, you know, that's the one mistake, I, I think, Jan, that why so many people are slow to, or not so many, but a fair number of people are slow to adapt to this new environment is because they lack the interpersonal skills, honestly, when they're in person. And so... I was talking to a senior partner recently and he's complaining that, you know, people need to come to the office. And I'm like, well, every time I've ever seen you, you've had your door closed. I said, so what's the difference, right? You know, because you don't want to be bothered, right? So they don't come, your door's closed, you, you shut them out. And so they're kind of just all standing around, you know, hoping to, to get in to see you for a minute. I said, you know, it's no different virtually. It's the same thing. You've got to make time for people. Yeah, it's a two-way street at the end of the day, right? Yeah, yeah. And then and then you have to bring people along. I mean, you have to be willing to say, this interruption was a really good interruption. I appreciate you doing it. You know, this was valuable. And you have to be willing to say, look, this one wasn't as valuable. This could have waited. Again, you just still have to talk to people and you have to understand that not talking to people, whether it's through a chat or just in person or whatever, only begets 
only makes them more needy, right? Because they, you know, they need some information. You're not willing to give them the information because you're sort of trying to block them out. So you got to you got to do everything you would do in person, but it's just easier and you save a lot more time when you're doing it virtually. Yeah, it's kind of making me think back to marketing in general as well, too, because it's just like a lot of the times, too, it's like people come up with these extremely elaborate and again, like with everything being remote now, there's the opportunity to do this and in, in like within the office as well, just like the backflips and all these crazy moves that people will make just to avoid having one difficult conversation or to say, hey, you know, I'd like you to take a kick at this problem before you ask me next time or bring me, bring me a solution next time I get a problem. And, you know, there's no auto responder that's going to get that conversation to happen on your behalf. Sometimes you just have to be a leader and step up and yeah. ask people, right? Yeah. Yeah, you do. And, and again, you either can leverage these tools and have just as fulfilling relationships as you could have in person, honestly, and actually when it comes to sharing documents and, and focusing on an issue, it is more effective to for you to be at your desk and me to be at mine. And you're looking at a 27 and I'm looking at a 27 you know, screen and I see the document and we're collaborating on it. And we're all just focused on that instead of me sort of awkwardly bending over your shoulder and trying to look at your monitor in your office and, you know, and. And it's, you know, it's just awkward, right? So, or I'm sitting there with a handwritten pad and I'm taking notes when I could just be updating that either the document or updating some digital communication device that we can share. So you are so much more productive working remotely like this, even if you're doing it. And it's interesting because we actually have clients who do conference calls now, like when we do a conference call, they're not in a conference room anymore. They're all sitting in their office participating in the conference call, right? Because yeah, yeah. they want to see it, their own version of it. They don't want to look at it up on a board somewhere. They want to They want to be at their desktop. They want to see it on their monitor. They want to take their notes. All their productivity tools are there. It's infinitely more effective than having six people sitting around a conference room going, hey, can you make that a little bigger? I can't get <laughs> a seat, right? So. And, and it's awkward. And then, of course, somebody's talking to somebody else in those environments or somebody's got to get some coffee or somebody's cell phone goes off. So it's so much easier in these, these tools. Now, is human contact important? Sure. I mean, and you have to try to do it where you can. But there's, you know, sort of segueing into a, a different subject. And this goes, this is a pro, you know, for marketing, too. When, you know, when we're working with our clients and we're talking to them about marketing, I explained to him is like, look, don't see your market as any, you know, as the, the county or the city or the that you live in. If you have a statewide restriction, for example, on where you can practice, see the whole state now because people don't want to see you anyway. You should be thinking about an arbitrage or a leverage play where you say we live in a smaller community. We've got first rate lawyers. You know, these are their pedigrees. And we can do really, really great work. But our cost of living is significantly less than, let's say, Houston. And so we're a really good value. You should be marketing that. And then when you stop and think about it, you're recruiting. And the great resignation relates more to the fact that maybe people in California are working for firms in Nebraska. Okay. And yeah. so it's now what the people who really don't appreciate this don't see is your workforce, if you're leveraged like this, if you're willing to do this. Your workforce is anywhere in America. It could be international, honestly. Okay. Mm -hmm. 
you know, I mean, for a lot of this. So, and the majority of legal work never goes to a courtroom. And, and, and with so much e-filing and everything else going on right now, you shouldn't be looking at it like, well, we hire people who live in, let's say, New Orleans to do New Orleans work. If you're a licensed to practice in the state, we don't care where you physically are. Okay. So you miss all those huge opportunities when you close yourself off to these approaches. Yeah. Man, there's a lot of directions we can go in for that. But like, I want to say first, it's like, it's kind of, you know, it's one of these situations, it's kind of like globalization where it's like, okay, well, a lot of these mom and pop shops, you know, back when this happened for the first time, uh, ended up closing down. It's like, they weren't competitive to begin with, you know, they just, their existence was only there because, you know, somebody bigger hadn't paid attention to where they were working. And I think for the people who have a truly competitive offering, um, there's a huge opportunity. As you think about it, if somebody's like, you know, a deep specialist in, you know, some specific type of family law or like child custody or something like that, you know, the best option for people that don't live in a major city that they're located in is probably a general practice who does this once every, you know, 24 months. So yeah. I think there's a huge opportunity for people. And you know, obviously, you know, within the realms of, of what's permitted for your state practice area. But yeah, like I think there's people who are going to be on the other side of that. You know, whoever's still running a general practice these days, you know, it's that I think those the <laughs> writing's on the wall for that stuff. I don't know why you would limit. To me, why limit yourself? Right. I mean, I just look at our situation, but also with clients we work with. You know, pre-pandemic, you know, I don't know, maybe we had 15 clients, 20 clients we were working on at any given time, you know. Post-pandemic, you know, it's 40 uh, at least, and it's all over the country and, and even different parts of the world right now because we can and because we figured it out and because we got great processes and we can make this work. The same thing is true for a lot of legal work, man. You know, it's a lot of legal work is not ultimately is not that jurisdictional. Now, some of it is, you know, some of it, it helps if you're mostly litigation, obviously, you know, it, it helps to be in that jurisdiction because, you know, the judges and all that stuff, but, but there is a ton of, ton of opportunity out there. And so I think that firms are sort of missing that, that when they continue to define themselves narrowly to, you know, some sort of geography that includes, you know, three or four zip codes, you know? Yeah. I think there's also sort of like, potentially a justification going on with people that's like they're more inclined to believe that the physical presence is important where they're committed from a capital perspective to like yeah. some crazy office lease. So it's it's almost like people I think I, I think I mean I'd, I'd say it's probably a safe bet that a lot of people are trying to rationalize that stuff. But yeah, I think the opportunities for anyone who's, who's ready to open their eyes to that stuff is huge. But um on the flip side, I think it's also super interesting just those kind of you know one world dynamics as far as the hiring market as well. And, you know, I think one of the things I'd love to ask you about is just basically, I feel like the lines are changing on what people require a law degree to do within a law firm. Like, I think, you know, if we look 10, 20 years ago, they, people would want somebody with a JD just to be able to answer the phones. But, you know, I, you know, there's people who are getting really fancy with not attorney closers, um, no, all kinds no. of roles. Like yeah. it's, it's really interesting. So like, how have you seen that been changing the last little bit, right? Well, the boundaries are starting. Well, what is the cliche necessity is the, the mother of invention or whatever. Yeah. I mean, I mean, just had this conversation last week with somebody and I said, look, if you can't find the lawyers, then automate part of the process and don't use lawyers on that part of the process, you know, start thinking out of things, start thinking of it differently. So, so when it comes to, 
technological opportunities coming on where pieces of cases now are being automated. There are outsourced opportunities where, you know, I've seen a, a flurry now of firms doing just say discovery and they're doing it all over the country and they're and and then I've seen this this flurry of people that are not attorneys. You know, maybe you have one attorney and maybe you have five non-attorneys, right? So when you need the license and you need that, people are going to innovate. You're just going to get left behind. There, you know, you can't put, first of all, the clients are now getting used to a more this is kind of there, there are a couple of things that are happening here. And this is where you're going to get left behind if you're not paying attention. The smart firms that are more progressive on this stuff and more open to it and are automating what they can. They're using different staffing solutions everywhere they can. Okay. And they're remaking their overhead model that is not so capital intensive, you know, the bricks and the mortar and that kind of stuff. And they're able to compete and make profit at maybe a rate structure that you can't because you won't innovate. Okay. Right. So maybe just on a lower end, let's say somebody's charging $200 an hour. Okay. And they're, let's say, making a 40 or 50% margin on that. And you're still doing that work and you're only making a 10 or a 15% margin because you're so, your, your cost structure is so dated that you can just see where that's going to go, especially in a time of inflation, right? We're in a, and, and where you have to pay people more and everything's costing more. So you can sit there and you can fight it all you want, but you're just going to get left behind. Yeah, and those firms that are going to be doing the 40, 50% too, those are guys going to be in the position to actually open the office <laughs> or, you know, open the new state thing or hire somebody local and, you know, go from California to Texas to Florida or whatever they want to do. And also hire more people too. Just like, I feel like there's a lot of misplaced uh, honor in, <laughs> in holding out on some of this stuff sometimes or, you know, hiring the top like people. At the end of the day too, it's just not competitive. And I think like, um, a lot of these firms are going to be doing better work too. It's just like at the end of the day, it's like if somebody is, uh, if you know, we're forcing attorney to do work that could be outsourced or you know done to somebody who's a non-attorney for ten or fifteen bucks an hour. You know, we don't need the person who went to law school to file those papers or do every yeah. single part of the process. So you know, those people are going to get more attention, and then you know maybe the stuff that doesn't necessarily require somebody to have gone through that, it's going to be able to spend more time on a case than somebody who did, right? And it's just kind of like getting really honest about what needs to be from an ethical perspective and also like a product perspective, what needs right. to have a journey on it. You have to be willing to understand like the old model was right. And I say it this way because it's really, really hard to do now. The old model was, you know, get a case, put a bunch of people on it, build a hell out, you know, build a lot of hours on it. Okay. And, you know, if you got a good result, great is if you, you didn't get a good result, just hope the client thinks you get a good result, you know, and, <laughs> But now with like the independent rating systems with so much of this data now and so many of these companies getting smarter and smarter about, you know, was the spend, you know, was the was the bang worth the buck, you know, the spend worth the buck, you know, all these ROI concepts and data analytics concepts are getting into it. I can understand how how somebody who goes to law school loves the law. I mean, and I'm not a lawyer, but I can appreciate professionalism. Somebody goes to law school, loves the law, you know, wants to fight the cause, wants to, you know, have to work around really smart people that they enjoy being around and and wants that camaraderie every day. I understand that. I understand on an emotional level, it sounds great, right? It's just nobody's willing to pay for that necessarily anymore. And and the younger people now, 
that's not their world, right? They figured out that if I can save, you know, two to three hours a day commuting and all the energy that takes, okay, I get to go pick up my kid at school or I get to maybe make a ball game I didn't get to make, or I maybe get to have a better relationship with my wife or my significant other or whatever, right? And they're not willing to give that back. You know, once you get a taste of that, you're like, no, my life is way more balanced. And and I think part of this, man, is, you know, this this generation that kind of sacrificed all of that, right? And they're like, you know, they're like saying, well, you know, I worked 2,400 hours a year and I was in the office every Saturday. Those, those days are gone. And, and as a matter of fact, I think we're on our way to the, you know, the you know, used to say the, the law firm was the 50 hour work week. We're yeah. on our way to the 40 hour work week total. And really what we are doing right now is we are remaking the law firm into the four day work week ultimately is where this is going. And this generation that is coming up now, I don't know if they're doing it consciously or not, but that's what they're driving towards. And they're willing to accept the financial consequences of that. You know, it used to be that you would get in and a partner would work, 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 try to get to the, you know, the 250 or 500,000 a year in, in, in income. And it was everything, right? And these these guys are like, yeah, we want to make a good salary, but I don't care if I make 400,000 a year or 200,000 a year. These other things are more important to me. It's not everybody, but they're overwhelmingly, a good 80% of the people now are way more balanced about what they're willing to give to their career. We'll see if it works in the long run, but I think it will. Yeah, no, it's interesting. And I mean, I guess there's kind of two ways to really approach this. And like one would be, okay, if we're trying to increase the amount of billable hours, then we either have to hire more people, which seems more difficult now than it has been, or kind of rearrange where we're deploying those hours, or maybe even kind of change the model. Like, have you seen anything in terms of like tipping the classic retainer model on the head or anything interesting that you guys have seen with your clients or anyone else that's, you know, yeah, kind of more on, that. Pricing, more on the pricing. Yeah. That kind of stuff. Yeah. I, I mean, look, the hourly billing is still overwhelmingly, is still overwhelmingly, at least in, in our world, the model. Okay. And there's a lot of reason for that because, you know, the larger, some more sophisticated buyers have spent lots and lots and lots of money on how to manage billable hour environments, you know what I mean? So the clients are really pushing that. I mean, so that I don't think is going to change necessarily anytime soon. But what I think is changing is the workload distribution and the staffing structure. And what is really difficult, is, as you point out, is let's say, let's say to make a million bucks, we used to need, you know, in profit, let's say we needed, I don't know, just to make it easy math. We needed eight lawyers to produce a million in profit. Now maybe we need 12. We still make the million. The capital cost is more, but we still make the million. And so we have to grow. You know, we have to grow and we have to, you know, if, if we're trying to do that, rather than just make less money. So that's one aspect of it. But as far as like flat fee models, you know, where you're seeing flat fee models and retainers and things like that in the places you've always seen them right? Estates, loan closings, you know, real estate, stuff like that. You've always seen it there. Obviously on the plaintiff side, that's all it is. You know, some of the lower end insurance work. Sometimes you'll see, you know, some of these, what they call collared fees or, or cases with success fees, you know, where you'll work. And then if you get a certain result, you'll get paid hourly up to a point, and then you get a piece of the case. 
but but no more honestly than no more than normal honestly and i've i've read a lot about that everybody keeps thinking like that's going <laughs> you like, hear it all the time too but just like it's one of those things too it's just like you know i, I wonder if it's the people who are like you know putting out like a like the credit card processing companies that are making to see like everyone's doing it but at the end of the day yeah, like yeah I, you're exactly right i think everyone talks about it like well and and i think for a long time for example people talked about like going to the cloud right oh you got to get in the cloud you got to get in the cloud you got to get in the cloud and then the pandemic hit and everybody who was talking about getting in the cloud. We really need to be in the cloud, you know? And so they're all kind of racing to do it as if it was just invented two years ago, right? And so (laughs) I think it's going to have to be pushed for the pricing models to change because right now it's it's just about managing the cost of the unit, okay? Is is predominantly how the clients are managing their legal spend, okay? And I think they're going to have to drive that change. Okay. And there are a few clients that we have that have pretty sophisticated clients who have them on a per case, you know, so you get paid so much per case. And then if it goes into litigation, you get another bump. And and there's some of that. And those are really interesting. And those can work really, really well. And we actually work on those pro formas for those clients when they have to price and reprice those things. But that is maybe two to three percent of it overwhelmingly it is still hourly, except in, you know, like I said, in the estates area, you know, real estate, things like that, where it's, you know, where it's a little bit easier to price on a, on a per, per transaction basis. Yeah. So if, if we might have to hit the snooze button as an industry on the <laughs> changing the paradigm on the pricing for a little bit, well, um, clients drive it. Yeah. <laughs> then we might have to like, and you know, just like, as far as the situation with the people, I mean, obviously if, if we have this, um, you know, this gap in the hiring rate is, is, you know, the unemployment rate is so low in the industry, somebody has got to be hiring these people. <laughs> so what do you think the firms that are attracting the best talent are doing differently than the people who are wondering, you know, whether the neutron bomb went off at law schools around the country? Well, we actually spend a lot of time with our clients in this area. And we actually, not the, this is shameless plug, I guess, but we develop something we call the attorney relationship management system. You literally have to manage your lawyers like you manage your clients. Okay. And you've got to create the right culture. You got to make sure the the work-life experience is right. You got to make sure the pay is right. Everything you would do for a client, you know, to maintain a healthy client relationship, you literally have to turn back around and say, we're going to treat our associates and our key people as if they're clients. Okay. Now, within the context of, of it, but, you know, in terms of the employer-employee relationship and things like that, I mean, it's a little different. But you, but all the principles are basically the same because, you know, as you as you get on the airlines, you know, sometimes they come out with that corny thing saying, "We know you have a choice, and you know who you fly." And I'm like, "No, actually, you're the only people flying this route right now." And so this, you know, this chair kind of is terrible, but I want to get where I'm going, so I'm going to sit here. But the point is, you know, these people have choices, you know, and they're gonna they're gonna work, you know. They're, they're, especially if they're in a remote environment, it's literally just changing an email and logging into a different system, right? They don't even have to go and do the sort of the obligatory clean out the office and, and, and get escorted out, you know? So it's really pretty easy. And, and you have to understand that, that to keep them, you have to treat them, you know, as almost as if they're a client. And, 
And so that means you gotta you gotta take care of them. You gotta talk to them. They gotta be comfortable with who you are as a firm. They've gotta be comfortable whether or not you value their contributions. You gotta be transparent with them. You know, there's all these different things, and we spend a lot of time in this area. But the people who embrace that, you know, because there's still a there's still a big pushback. It's like, well, you know, sooner or later, you know, these kids are gonna have to realize, you know, that that you know. And I'm like, no, actually. They're not going to realize that, you know, things, <laughs> things have changed, you know, and but the people are really successful, are the ones who create this real culture of care and where these people feel like you got their back and that it's a long term play and that, you know, that that you care about the things that they care about. I mean, you know, one thing that I've seen was just pretty creative is that firms that have a, a pool where they invest in like different charities that are important to the people, right? So, you know, into the ASBCA or something like that. And I tell, you know, and the firm says, oh, well, we give to the ASB, you know, so now I feel good about, hey, you guys care about what I've, I've, I'm another firm. These guys help people to bring their pets to work, assuming they don't sort of maul each other. But I mean, (laughs) you know, they're dog friendly firm. And so their people can literally bring their little pup to the firm. All these different things just to create sort of this environment where people feel welcome and people feel like they want to be identified with that organization. It's really interesting too, because like, um, you know, it's like the thing they always say, it's like, yeah, when people point a finger, it's like, you got three pointed back at yourself. Right. So it's like, yeah. I think a lot of the times too, it's just the people that are are so insistent to say that the incoming crop of hires is entitled, feel a sense of entitlement itself that like, those people should be lucky that they have a job. And it's the people who like take that first step to understand that people have a choice. And really it's probably more about like, you know, opening your eyes at this point than anything else They can even take the steps to have these kind of initiatives. But I can kind of imagine like there's the, the first level, you know, the first order benefits of somebody who's, who's feeling felt about those things is that, you know, it's a better place for that person to work, but also, like the second order consequences, like if everyone's you know happy and motivated, then you know the business is probably going to be doing better. Nothing feels better than you know being in a rising tide, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, look, practicing law for the most part. You know, I, I used to think that's what I wanted to do when I before I I wanted to be in the hotel business, and then I got a job in the hotel and realized I don't want to do this. I want to be on the other side of the desk checking in rather than checking in. And I and I'm working in law firms all my life. I've I've come to really appreciate it's a difficult job, right? I mean, you know, you're you're either on one end of the spectrum where you're you're getting paid a decent amount of money to do monotonous work over and over and over and over and over. Uh, to the other end of the spectrum where if you don't win, maybe the client suffers catastrophic loss, right? And so, and everything in between. So this is, it's a hard way to make an easy living is what one of our clients told me one day and it kind of struck me. So yeah, you're going to be in an air conditioned office or environment, you're going to have nice tools and, but you're going to work a lot of hours. Even if you're billing 1900, you're going to work a lot of hours. You're going to have more work typically than you could probably handle and you're going to wake up in the middle of the night and you're going to think about the 15 things you forgot to do that day. It's all just part of it, right? And so I just think what, and you see in law firms, and in, at least a, in sort of the generation that preceded this one, is an incredible work-life imbalance, right? You know, they 
it, it was, it was kind of like that pricing model. Everybody talked about work-life balance, except nobody had it, right? Mm-hmm. And for the first time, I think we're at a point where people are saying, no, we are going to have a work-life balance, okay? Because that's never was really up to the firm. That was up to, to, to me to have the discipline to say, we're going to have a work-life balance instead of just kind of, and, you know, some people think it's the end of the world as we know it, right? Some people think that, you know, they're all just going to go broke and they're not going to be able to handle it. But the truth of the matter is they're going to figure it out just fine. Yeah. Whether they believe it, it's the end of the world or not, it's probably going <laughs> to, it's true for both the both of those people, right? Right. I mean, you know, and I think that the other thing that you have to realize is that, I mean, I used to think, you know, like three years or four years ago, I was telling uh, the thing that preceded this was that there weren't enough people getting trial experience. You know, the number of trials every year were coming down because mostly because the people who were going to trial, the larger companies, the volume were just like settled because they didn't want to deal with the trial. It was too expensive. And by the time you add up the legal fees. So if you can get me out, even if we were in the right, I'll pay just because I got to get out of this process. So the the amount of trial work available for, for young people to learn how to do trial work has been reducing every year. So all the trial lawyers now, you know, people can actually go to court and handle major litigation, tend to be, you know, in their 60s, honestly, late 50s, 60s. It is not uncommon to have people that work in litigation firms in their mid-40s going into their 50s who have never tried a case, okay? And so... So the industry right now, you know, a lot of these industries are holding on. That's why you see like, you know, trial lawyers going to, going to trial still at 70 years old. OK. And a lot of them don't want to do it. OK. Like they're they're over it. You know, they but they don't have anybody else in the firm who can try the case that the client will trust. And so and the clients have come kind of back to them and said, look, we were loyal to you for all these years. You need to try this case for us. Right. So we, we run into that in our transition planning service, you know, where people are trying to get out and they can't. And so I used to say, well, what's going to happen is you're going to have three inexperienced trial lawyers in Google. You know, <laughs> they're just going to be because the analytics now and the, you know, when you really stop and think about where this is going, you're going to be able to load a fact pattern. You know, and this is already happening. This isn't anything novel. You're going to be able to load a fact pattern into a jurisdiction and you're going to get back an idea of whether or not, you know, the analytics say you ought to you ought to try that case. Right. And then you're going to ultimately when they get really good, they're going to give you a range that you should settle it in. OK, so, you know, it's like uh, if you watch uh, it's happening right before our eyes, like in the NFL, if you notice how many coaches this year in the NFL were going for fourth down more trying to get two point conversion. That's because the analytics were telling them that it's a better bet to do that than to, than to take the short thing. That doesn't always work out, right? And because, you know, you have to look at what's happening at the time, and that's where the judgment comes in. But my my point is, technology is going to supplant, it's going to have to, and I don't even want to like get into the conversation if it's better or worse, it's just going to be is, it's going to supplant a lot of the knowledge base that we're just not going to have anymore, you know, and and you have to embrace that. I mean, you can't look at it like it's the end of the world. I mean, you know, email is the end of the world. You know, the, you know, I mean, fax machines were never going to, you know, we're never going to take <laughs> off, right? Yeah. I mean, you're never going to be able to fax somebody a legal document. I mean, I don't even, nobody knows what that is anymore, right? Yeah. 
email, you, you're not going to be able to, oh, digital signature, you're not going to be able to do digital signature, e-filing, you're not going to be able to do e-filing. It all, it all just keeps going, man. Yeah. So you can either accept it and, and you know try to succeed in the new world, or you can hang on to the old one and go down with the ship pretty much. I always say, try to drag the best parts of the old world into the new world, right? Try to take the important shit. You know, I'm sorry. Try to you That's know, okay. Try to take the important qualitative aspects out of it and say, hey, how can these new tools take this and help me replicate it so that it becomes sort of native to our process and more people can benefit from it? Yeah. You know, rather than it's all right here, right? You know. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's an awesome place to uh, to kind of wrap this up, Brian. Especially we're getting until uh, I don't want to be too uh, aggressive and getting close to our, our cutoff time. But um, yeah, I think it's a really good place. They would kind of come full circle. So you know, the world's changing; it's going to continue to change. Uh, you know, you you have to accept that things are going to continue to change. And if you don't want to, then you have to at least accept the fact that people you're hiring probably will. <laughs> so yeah, and, um, I, and honestly, Jan, I think there's a tremendous opportunity for people in your business, you know, because the trouble with, with your business is there are a lot of people who do it, but there are a lot of people who are still doing the same stuff that uh, they were doing, you know, 10 years ago, right? You know, they just maybe dress it up, throw a couple of buzzwords at it. But so I think as far as quality marketers who understand just how whole, the whole digital space really works and what motivates people to buy and, uh, you know, worth its weight in gold. And that's probably only in my experience, that's maybe 10 or 20 percent of you. You know what I mean? Is is that can really <laughs> that might be that might be generous. <laughs> yeah. I mean that can really deliver on the claims, right? You know, they all claim, you know, a thousand website hits an hour, whatever they're gonna claim, you know, top number one Google, you know, and but it's so not about that, right? So and that's a topic I know for another day, but but I think we if we had another hour, we could talk you know, Eon's just about, you know, how you market in this world, you know, because that's changing dramatically as well. Yeah. Maybe let's keep that one for a to be continued. We, we could get a, a part two yeah. going for this in a little bit, Brian. I think that's like, that's actually a really good idea. Um, okay. So let's, uh, to wrap this up for anyone who's been enjoying this conversation, do you guys have anything new going on the site? Any cool stuff going on, uh, content stuff to subscribe to that kind of thing? Yeah. Yeah. Man, the, uh, we have two, I don't know how new they are, but they're constantly growing. You know, subscribe, come to the website, performlaw.com and go out to the resources page and you're going to find a lot of these editable PDFs. So a lot of the a lot of the process that we have, we've just been sharing. I mean, we just have someone who whenever we come up with a neat utility or something like that or some kind of thing, we have somebody who does nothing but just turn it into a template and then make an editable PDF. And that's all free. You can just go out there and get it. Yeah. And it's kind of funny for, for the listeners. I know we didn't get into it too much because we were talking about stuff from more of like a Mac perspective, but the, um, yeah, Brian's content, the stuff his team's putting out is super process driven, super awesome for anyone who really wants to get into the nitty gritty. So I would definitely recommend anyone who's, you know, God resonate with any part of this conversation and definitely check that out. So, um, all right, we'll get that stuff in the show notes. Brian, thank you so much for coming on. And um, for everybody else, I'll see you guys next Tuesday at 8 a.m. Eastern on the Law Firm Growth Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Law Firm Growth Podcast. For show notes, free resources, and more, head on over to casefuel.com slash podcast. Looking forward to catching up on the next episode.